You're listening to audio from New King Church. If you'd like to get our weekly sermons, hit subscribe. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit newkingchurch.com. Please remain standing. Um, This is the portion of our service where we hear from God's word, and we stand to honor it because we believe that this is the word of God come to us, and it's without flaw. So our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5. And when I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servant with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is it not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, We thank you that we can come today and hear from your word and worship you in song and in scripture reading. Um, We thank you that you're a God who is involved in the details of our life, Lord, and that you care about us. Um, I pray now as Ben comes to deliver the message that you'd give him grace, help him to, to preach your words, Lord, give your spirit to him. And help us, Lord, as a body to, to have soft hearts to hear the um, Help them to not fall on deaf ears, but to sink deep into our hearts and change our lives, Lord. We want to be a people that is after your business, Lord. So we just pray that you would change us, that you'd mold us into your image. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just making sure you're awake. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Ben, and uh, so glad that you're here this morning to uh, hear from God's word and to worship with us. And um, I don't know, I don't know what brought you here this morning. Um, maybe you're here because a friend asked you to come, and you said, "Sure, okay, uh, if that'll get you off my back." Or maybe you're here because. You're going through something hard, you're hurting, and you're looking for some comfort. Uh, Or maybe you're here this morning, and you don't know how you got here. Uh, You'd be surprised how many times I hear that. Like, what what brought you here this morning? I I don't know. Something mysteriously, like, just pulled me here. Um, Whatever the case, I'm really glad that you're here. And uh, here at New King, we believe that there are no accidents, and um, that you're here on purpose, that the sovereign God brought you here to this hot, sweaty room this morning um, to hear this message. 
And so I hope that your ears are turned on. And I, I've been praying for you this week leading, leading up to this. So um, know that. If, if you don't have a Bible, we are down to a couple. Uh, we're ordering more. But if you're the first to raise your hand, the first two to raise their hands gets a Bible. Um, we, like, we like to hand out Bibles, so we run out of them. Um, now, if you don't have a Bible, I'm sorry. Uh, you can always download the Bible app and use that. But yeah, the, the, what we're going to be learning this morning just comes straight out of the Bible. Um, so if you're new here, we don't get up here and tell our own opinion and, you know, that's really pointless. Uh, that'd be a big waste of your time. We teach what the Bible says, and we believe it to be the authority. We believe it to be the source of truth that God has spoken. And, and so we just teach what the Bible says, and that's what you're going to hear this morning. Um, we've been, been going through this character study on King David, and we've, we've done 12 weeks. It's been good. We've learned a lot. We've learned a lot from not only David, but also Saul, who preceded David and, and he made a lot of mistakes, and so we've learned from his mistakes. And we've been talking about learning what we can from this flawed but faithful servant, David. And the majority of David's life is characterized by faithfulness. Um, uh, but, but, as we just heard, and as we're going to see today, he was imperfect, very flawed. Um, and... What we learn as we actually, as we read the Bible, is that there was only one perfect person ever, and his name was Jesus. That's why we're singing about him uh, and not David. That's why we're, we're talking about Jesus 2,000 years after he walked the earth, is because he was the one who was perfect, the only one who was perfect. And then all the other characters in the Bible are messed up, broken people, um, Noah had a drinking problem. Abraham frequently lied and put his wife in danger. Rahab was a prostitute. Um, Moses killed an Egyptian. Gideon was a coward and was hiding from his responsibilities. Jacob was a deceiver. Um, Peter was ashamed of Jesus when Jesus needed him most and denied him. In fact, all of Jesus' disciples, his closest followers, uh, took off running when Jesus was arrested to be crucified. Um, and today we're looking at another broken and flawed person that God used in the Bible, David. Um, we're looking at his greatest failure, this adultery with Bathsheba. And, uh, and as we continue to read, we find out he even has her husband Uriah killed. Um, it just gets worse. So why did God include the failures of people in the story? Like, couldn't he have made this a little shorter and easier to read and just told us about the good things that people did and skipped all these, you know, failures? And the fact of the matter is, it's, it's I think, a great encouragement to us that he did include these failures in the Bible. It shows us that God only uses broken people, except for Jesus. 
He only uses broken and flawed and weak, stumbling people to accomplish his purposes. And I don't know about you, but that's a comfort to me. Um, I, I was just facing the reality this morning that I don't deserve to stand up here and teach the Word of God. I don't have some, any, any special qualities about myself that makes me worthy of that. But by God's grace, He's, he's invited me to do it. And it is really, that, that song that we just sang, great pick. I mean, uh, it really is by grace and grace alone. Like, we will not stand before God one day and say, thanks for helping me out, you know. Thanks for giving me that little leg up that I needed. It's going to be, this was all you, all along. Um, so we're going to learn from this story this morning um, that there's hope for those who are right now in this room caught in the power of sin. We're going to learn that it is possible to come back from even devastating failure. We're going to learn also what each one of us can do, regardless of where you are, in order to be restored to God, or in order to come back from failure, or in order to be set free from the power of sin. So I hope you're excited to hear that. Let's pray. Father, it truly is by grace and grace alone that we can come to you in prayer, that we can stand before you at all, that we have your ear. It is by grace and grace alone that our lives are ever transformed in any measure more and more into the likeness of Christ. It is by grace alone that you awakened us to our sin, you, that, you, that you awakened our conscience and made us seek after you. It is all by grace, and you are the only one worthy of our praise and our affections, and our worship. And this morning, God, I pray that your grace would fall like rain in this hot, sticky room. I pray that hearts would melt before you like wax. I pray that your word would go forth with great power. And I ask it through the only perfect one, Jesus Christ. Amen. The book of James, uh, if you want to flip to James chapter 1 and look at a couple of verses with me really quickly, James chapter 1. James tells us, he gives us some insight into how it is that we all, including David, find ourselves in sin. And sin, if you're new to all of this, is a word for, um, it means to miss the mark. It, it, it's a word for rebellion against God. It's a word that means that you're going your own way and you're ig ignoring God's way. And James gives us some insight into how a person goes into sin. James chapter 1, 13 through 17. 
He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, the word desire in, in, in our culture, what does the world tell us about desires? They're all good, follow them all, right? And then you will be happy. Follow your heart. Um, do what's in your heart. Every Disney movie has this message, right? Some way, shape, or form. Um, but it's, you know, it's not just Disney. It's everywhere. This is the message of the world. Go after what makes you feel good. There's a problem with that. And the problem is that our human nature, our, what the Bible refers to as the flesh, um, it is evil, inherently evil. We actually don't desire good things. We, we desire selfish things. And so when we go after all our desires, it leads us into ruin. Um, and James here, he's telling us that we're tempted when these desires lure us away. We're enticed by them. We just decide to give in to them. And then he goes on and says, do not be deceived because every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. Now, what does that have to do with what he just said? Well, everything. It has everything to do with what he just said. What he is saying is that God is going to give you everything you should have. He's going to provide for you. He is going to give you all that you need. And everything, in fact, that is good that you should have, He will give to you. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from Him. And so, here's how we get into trouble. It's the same way in the very beginning the way that we find out that, that humanity falls into this whole sin thing is Satan comes to the first human beings, Adam and Eve. And there's this one tree that God has said, you can have the fruit of any tree in, in the whole garden, except for this one. This one is off limits. And the devil comes to Eve and says, but that one, oh, but that one. And Eve wants what God has said no to. And that's how this whole thing starts. It all starts with going after what God has said no to, what he hasn't given you. And that's where temptation to sin comes from. When we want what God has said no, this is off limits. I will give you every good and perfect gift. But not that. That's not for you. That's not good for you. And this is exactly what we crave 
We crave the things that God has said no to. We crave what we know we shouldn't have. And this is what happens to David. David craves Bathsheba, a woman that's not his wife, a woman that's another man's wife, what God has said no to. But I want to show you, David messed up before he ever even saw Bathsheba. This is really important. Look at, <clears throat> back to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11, and I want to just look at the first two verses. This is, this is good, um, really practical help for us. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, that's David's a king. David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Now, I want you to see that David set himself up for failure here. Um, David, at the time when kings go out to battle, said, you guys go, I'll stay home. And that was his first mistake. And then the other thing that we see that he does here is that it's late one afternoon and he's lounging around on the couch. Now, I mean, sure, he has the freedom to do that. He's a king. He can lounge around all day every day if he wants. But I want us to look at this and, and think about how a person is lured and enticed away into sin. They're, we are lured and enticed when the desires of our flesh pull us away. Now, I would argue that David has already been feeding his flesh before he ever stumbles upon Bathsheba. He chose idleness when he should have been fighting. He chose isolation when he should have been with his comrades. He, sh he chose lounging when he should have been working. Now, why, why bother to point this out? Because God explicitly commands us not to do this, not to make this mistake. In Romans 13, 14, we are commanded, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's an easy one to memorize and a great one to memorize. Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, if you really want to get rid of sin in your life and you make an honest assessment of your life and you ask yourself this question, where am I making provision for the flesh? you will suddenly see all kinds of ways that you're doing this. If you've never made this, if you've never asked this question before, where am I making provision for the flesh? God is counseling us, don't set yourself up. Don't tempt yourself. Don't put your flesh in a place where it can just go after whatever it desires. So if you struggle with an addiction to alcohol, then don't go down that aisle in the grocery store. Or 
if you struggle with pornography, don't go online when you're alone. Or don't shop when you don't have the money. Or don't isolate yourself from community. Or don't nap when you know you should be working. Or don't work when you know you should be napping. Seriously. I don't watch movies that stir your lusts or hang out with friends that lead you into ruin or watch the news if it causes nothing but worry and fear. Listen, if you just stop and look at your life and say, am I making provision for my flesh in any area? I guarantee you, you will begin to see ways that you can cut things out and begin to be smart about the way that you live. So make no provision for your flesh. That's the first thing I wanted to share with you about this story. So David sets himself up for this when he sees Bathsheba. He's already weak. His flesh is already kind of the one in control. And he sees Bathsheba. He's lured and enticed. He craves what God has not given him. And he sends servants to bring Bathsheba to him. Now, this is what sin does to us. It causes selfishness that's already in there to multiply. David, notice, does not give one second thought to Uriah, who, by the way, is out fighting for him and his kingdom. He doesn't give one second thought to Bathsheba and what this will do to her and her life. He doesn't give one second thought to his own family. He doesn't give one second thought to the people. This is going to impact, does he? And this is what sin does to us. This is what I want to show you. This is what we do. When we go after sin, we shut off all concern for everyone else. We live for numero uno. And guess who else David is not thinking about? He is not thinking about God. David, the man, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart in this moment is not thinking about God at all. He's so absorbed with what he craves in this moment that he pushes God and God's word out of his thinking. He's very acquainted with the commands of God and knows that God forbids adultery. He knows that this is selfish. He knows that this is against God's law. He knows God even is, is against coveting, wanting another person's spouse. And yet, here he is doing what he knows is evil. Because in the moment of his isolation, the moment of his idleness, feeding the flesh... He doesn't care about God or God's commands. Now, in that moment, he also doesn't care about the consequences, right? But notice when he does start caring about the consequences. When he gets a little note from Bathsheba saying that she's pregnant. Now, all of a sudden, he starts to scramble. He starts to cover his tracks. He comes up with this plan, and we didn't... We didn't read this part because we we're limited with time, but basically what you'll find as you continue to read is he, he begins to cover his tracks, and the first thing he does is he calls for Uriah. He thinks, you know, 
I'll bring Uriah home from, from fighting, and he'll go home, he'll sleep with his wife, and then hopefully, boom, bada, you know, bada bing, bada boom. I don't know why I just went Italian on this. How, not Italian at all. Um, he starts to cover his tracks. He thinks this is a quick, easy way out. Well, guess what happens? Uriah is... <laughs> Uriah has too much integrity for this to work. Uriah comes home. He's like, hey, thanks, man. Yeah, it's going great out there. We're, we're, we're doing a good job for you. How's it going sleeping on the couch? And, and David's like, it's going good here. You know, go, go home. And, uh, and Uriah goes and sleeps outside. Because he says, I'm not going to go and sleep indoors while my commander and my fellow soldiers are sleeping in tents under the stars. So that plan fails. So David is like, okay, plan B. If all else fails, let's get him drunk. So David invites Uriah back up. He's like, hey, man, let's talk some more. Here, have a little glass of wine, you know. Oh, yeah, I got a few glasses of wine. You know, here you go. And the next thing you know, Uriah is like stumbling out. He's like, you know, and he says, hey, yeah, Uriah, go on home. You know, enjoy some time at home. Relax. And he still sleeps outside. God's like, eh, David, I'm not going to let you cover your tracks. So David in what seems like an almost unthinkable decision in a moment of panic because he cannot bear the thought of being exposed, he decides to have this man of integrity killed. So he sends a note with Uriah, by the way, knowing Uriah is too integrous. He's not going to open the note to see what it says. Sends a note with Uriah to Joab, the commander of the army, and says, put him on the front lines and have the men draw back in the heat of battle. He's going to have him killed. He knows, David knows how evil this is. But do you see what sin does, how it deceives our hearts? When we are in the throes of it, we become entirely inwardly focused. He cares not one ounce at this moment what God thinks. So he suppresses the truth in order to be able to do what he wants to do. And this is what we do too. I mean, this, the point of looking at David's story isn't just so we can say, man, I'm glad I never did that. The point is to look at the story and say, I am that man. This is what I do. When sin is lodged in my heart, I become incredibly selfish and self-focused, and I will do anything to cover my tracks. And then 
we harden our hearts and the sin takes more and more ground and more and more control in our lives just the way it does in David's. Sin begets sin. Look at, look at the process here for David. Laziness leading to idleness and idleness leading to lust and then lust leading to adultery and adultery leading to deceit which is leading to more deceit and more deceit just piled on top, which eventually leads to murder. Something I guarantee you, in the beginning of this whole thing, he would have never thought imaginable. And here's the thing for us to remember. You are not in control of your sin. Sin will take you further than you want to go, and it will keep you longer than you want to be there. I know from my own experience, sin is a powerful force that we do not want to mess with. Sin, your sin and my sin, is never harmless. Don't buy that lie. It is never harmless. It's like dropping a stone in the lake and you see the ripples spread out and go all the way across that lake. And that's what sin is like. When you drop sin into your life, the ripples spread out everywhere and affect everyone around you. David's sin cost Bathsheba, her husband, and the loss of a child, the baby that is born to her dies. It costs Uriah his life. It costs other soldiers who were a part of the whole cover-up scheme their lives. There were casualties in it. It cost David's family tremendously, and it cost God his glory. You see, above all of the costs of sin that we see within the lives of people around us, our sin costs the one person that really matters most, God. It grieves his heart. This story takes a turn. So the question that we came here hopefully asking, wanting answered was, is there hope after failure? Like, are we just left with this terrible news that our sin is this powerful force that takes us further than we want to go? Or, we, or is there hope? There's hope. So, after all of this, God sends a prophet, Nathan, to talk to David. And Nathan goes and he shares this story with David. He talks to him about this rich man who takes a poor man's only sheep that, that this poor man loves. And this rich man takes his, this poor man's only sheep to use for his purposes when he has plenty of his own. And David hears the story and he is furious. And just at the moment when he is furious with this guy, Nathan flips the lights on and he says, you are 
that man. And what happens in that moment is miraculous. What happens in that moment is that David's dormant conscience is awakened by the grace of God. There is nothing more dangerous to your life than a sleeping conscience, than a numb conscience. Nothing will destroy your life quicker than a conscience that no longer feels. And so God, in His grace, goes to David. Even though David does not deserve it in the least, he goes to David and he awakens that conscience. And when David hears it, he's immediately struck to the heart. And he says, I have sinned. Second Samuel 12, 7 through 10. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Do you hear what God is saying? I have given you and given you and given you and given you. And I would have even given you more if you would have asked. But you wanted what I had not given you. Do you see that in James 1? God says to him, you have struck. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God does not say to David, you have despised Uriah, even though that was true. He does not say, you have despised Bathsheba, even though that was true. What he says is, you have despised my word, and you have despised me. And this awakens his conscience to repentance. At the root of all our sinning is this, that we prefer something over God. Anything in that moment, whether that's my desire to express this anger or my desire to have this prejudice in me or my desire to participate in this gossip and feel like I know some things that maybe everybody doesn't know. Or... This is what's at the root of all sinning. We want something uh, more than God. Something that God has said no to. 
and we harden our hearts. The, the question for you now to just wrestle through is, what am I doing this with? Where am I hardening my heart? Where's my conscience become seared? Is it stealing a little bit at work? You know, just maybe it's just pins or starts small. Or, or is it, you know, flirting with that person that's not your spouse? Or is it looking at that thing that you know you should not? Is it greed? Is it your thought life? What is it in your life? You know. So Nathan awakens David's dormant conscience. I've been praying this whole week that God would do this in this room. That dormant consciences would come awake in the process of this sermon. Because there is there are no greater gifts to us than dormant conscience. What, what I hope that you'll see clearly is that there are people in the Bible who fail and fail and fail and die in their failure like Saul. And then there are people. This is the rest of the people. They fail and they turn back to God. And they fail, and they turn back to God again. You see, what the Bible teaches is that there are no perfect Christians, but there are Christians who are good at repenting quickly, and there are those who are not. And that if you want to come back from failure, there is only one thing for you to do, and that is to repent. To repent, it means to change your mind, which results in a change in action. And this is what we see David do. As a result of Nathan coming to him and awakening his conscience, he feels this guilt. And, and here is what, here's what I don't want for you to do. I don't want for you to feel guilt and condemnation and, and shame and leave here carrying that. That is not at all what I want. You see, an awakened conscience is a gift because it's what's first needed for us to return to God. And to return to God is the greatest thing a person can do. So after your conscience is awakened to your sin, as much as that stings, here's what I want you to hear. Now healing can come. Thank God for a burdened conscience because now healing can come. How? How? Well, If you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, you, you're, you've come here this morning and you're sort of checking all this out. Listen, the, the response 
is actually the same for both. It's actually the same response either way. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Regardless of whether you have been walking with God for 10 years or you're just checking this out, this is the response required of us. The first thing that we do when our conscience is stirred and pricked and wounded is we humble ourselves and we admit our sin. That's the first thing we do. We admit our sin and turn from it. This is essential for repentance. Admitting it, confessing it. The Bible calls it confession. It means to agree with God about your sin. Not to cover over it and act like it's no big deal, but to agree and say, God, this thing, this is evil. I admit it. Name your sin to the Lord. Name your sin to someone. Do you know that in this church there are groups of people meeting weekly just to confess out loud our sins? This is not a church that tries to pretend like we're perfect. We got, all, got it all together. We're a church that admits that we're broken every single week. To other people, we humble ourselves and we say, I've blown it again. And this is how I blew it this week. Would you pray for me? Admit your sin. Humble yourself. Admit your sin to God. Listen to what David writes. So after this, he writes Psalm 51. If you want to look into this, please read Psalm 51 when you get home today. Read it on your knees. Pray through Psalm 51. This is David's prayer of repentance after his conscience is awakened. And in Psalm 51, 4 and 6, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's agreeing with God about his sin. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then in verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Sin makes us deceive even our own selves and cover over and try and act like our sin is no big deal. God wants truth in your innermost being. He wants you to look at it and see it for what it is. It is evil, it is wicked, it is ugly. And to turn from it. Why? What happens if I turn from it? How, what does all this have to do with Christianity, with faith? Turning from your sin, and then you turn to Jesus Christ. You turn to Him in faith. Acts 3, 19 through 20 says, Repent, therefore, there's that word, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When your conscience is burdened, what are you looking for? You want to be refreshed by the presence of the Lord. And so you turn to Him so that that can come. Every revival in history has started with this, a repentance of God's people. Everyone. Prayer and repentance. Second Chronicles 7.14 tells us that this is how revival comes. 
It's not a mystery how revival comes. It's really clear. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, number one, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, repentance, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is what repentance looks like. Humbling yourself, admitting your sin, turning away from your sin and to God. And that's the second part. Turning to God, looking to Jesus, and believing that he died and rose from the dead for you. Why did Jesus go to a cross? Because our sin is wicked. Our sin is evil. And payment had to be paid. And so Jesus... The perfect man, the only one who didn't have a debt to pay, went to the cross to pay our debt. He died on that cross, absorbing the wrath of God, paying the penalty for our sin. He was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave. And the Bible says that if you turn to him, and believe on Him, your sins will be forgiven. Forgiven. Like all the way forgiven, done away with, clean. Isn't this hard for us to wrap our minds around, but God makes it easy for us. He says, I will remember them no more. I will cast them as far away from me as the east is from the west. He doesn't forgive our sin in quotation marks and then write it on a piece of paper and keep it close by in case he wants to remember it again. No. This is where joy comes from. It's from a cleansed conscience that is at first awakened to our sin and then goes to God and says, I sinned, I admit it, this is what I did, and I was wrong, and it was evil, and I trust that Jesus died for me to make payment for this, and that he rose from the dead, and that that death on the cross was enough. And if you do that, you will be saved and you will be forgiven and you will be clean. John, 1 John 1, nine promises us this. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. A truly awakened conscience longs for a real and practical cleansing. David in his psalm says over and over again things like, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God. A truly awakened conscience longs desperately for a real cleansing. And there is only one way to get that. And that is through faith. In faith alone. 
in Jesus Christ and in him alone. That is good news for us this morning. That is good news for every one of us this morning. That is what God wants from every person here this morning, including me. Whether you have been walking with God or you are just brand new to this, he wants you to turn from sin today and look on Christ today and place your trust in him today for the forgiveness of your sins and to believe the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if anyone confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then, then what? Then what? When we have been cleansed, when we have been forgiven, all by grace, only by grace, then we walk in obedience to Him, also by grace and only by grace. We begin to obey what He says to do, one step at a time, as He reveals His will by grace. We believe His will, and we believe He wants to help us, and we take a step, one step at a time, we obey Him. This begins in Scripture with getting baptized. In Scripture, all throughout, when a person places their trust in Jesus, when they meet Jesus, or when they put their trust in Jesus, the very first act of obedience for them is baptism. It's the very first act of obedience. Jesus commanded his disciples as he was about to ascend into heaven, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Peter, in his first sermon at Pentecost, his first big gospel sermon, at the end of it, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Their consciences were awakened. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Turn from your sin to Jesus Christ in faith and then begin to walk in obedience to him, starting with baptism. What is baptism? It's a public declaration of your faith. It's you saying publicly, look, I am not ashamed to be named as one of his. Practically, what is it? Well, we, we have this big tank under the stage, like a big tub. And what it is is you go down into the water, and this is the way we see it in Scripture. This is the way Jesus was baptized. He went down into the Jordan. And then we dunk you under the water, and we pop you back up, and it symbolizes death to your old way of life and being raised to new life with Christ. And it is a powerful step of obedience and a powerful declaration of your faith in Jesus. And if you've already done that, then what do you do? Um, Right now, what do you do this morning? Like, How how do you respond? That's what what we want to focus on now. How do I respond? Um, We're going to give you time to do that. We have some people in the back who are ready to pray with you. Um, if you look in the back right now, raise your hand, guys, if you're on the prayer team. Okay? If you want to pray with somebody, 
We've got a prayer team ready to pray with you. If you want to just have them pray for you, that's what they're there for. If you want to talk to them about getting baptized and what in the heck is that about and how do I do that, they're there to talk to you. If you want to talk to them about coming to know Jesus Christ, turning from your sin and placing your faith in Jesus, they're here to talk to you. Right now, we're going to give you that opportunity. So, if God has awakened your conscience, then right now, you can, you can respond. You can, you can go back there. If God has put his finger on some sin in your life, you can repent of that right now. You can lay that down. You can confess that to him. If God is calling you to become a follower of his, a follower of Jesus, and place your trust in him, you can do that right now. As the band begins to play, you can respond right now. There's no shame. If you want to pray with somebody, get up. Walk to the back. No shame. This is a safe place. Somebody's got to be the first. I know there's people who want to do it. Get up and walk to the back. And there's people ready to pray with you. And then we're going to move into a time of communion from here. But right now, this is your chance. Right now, just respond to God in your seat. Right where you are or get up and go to the back and pray with someone. We're going to wait. Can a person come back from failure? The answer is yes. 
the Bible gives us a resounding yes. Again and again and again, he will take you back. He will take you back. I'm going to ask that the prayer team just remain in the back during the time of communion. If you want prayer, as we partake of communion, they're still going to be there for you, to pray with you. Um, Now, what is communion? As we move into this time of continuing to respond to the Lord through communion, communion is is another physical symbol of a spiritual reality, just like baptism is. Baptism is this physical symbol of a spiritual reality of your death to your old way of life and your new life in Christ. Well, communion is another physical symbol of a spiritual reality. And we do this every week here at New King. Um, We have tables in the front and the back with juice and with matzo bread on them. And what communion is, it's an opportunity for us to remember and reflect on what Christ did for us on the cross. His body was broken for us. And so he said, whenever we break bread, to remember that. And so we break the matzah. You'll hear it cracking. And every time, it's a, it's a reminder that he was whipped, that his hands were pierced and his feet were pierced. And we drink the cup. It's grape juice. And Jesus gave wine to his disciples. And he said, whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood of the new covenant. And so every week here, we partake of this physical symbol of a spiritual reality that we're one with Christ as we take in his body and his blood. We remember that we're one with him. So if you're a believer here this morning, this is for you. This is an opportunity for you to celebrate that you are clean, Christian. That if you just now confessed your sins to God, he was faithful. He is faithful every time. And he cleansed you. And so now is the time to celebrate, to come to the table with joy, to take of the bread and of the cup, and to thank him for what he did. And so right now, you do that, and then we're going to take the blood and the, the, the uh, cup and the bread together when you get it back to your seat. So go ahead and respond to the tables when you're ready.